That's like saying, like, if I got fired for, like, masturbating in the workplace, being like, I got fired just for having a vagina. And it's like, no, you had a vagina and you got fired for what you did with it. Phone to slip into my soda. Okay. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the show where I'm trying to keep my headphone from slipping into my soda. <laughs> no, that's not it. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the show where we try and understand what words mean. Ooh, that's very good, actually. It turns out they mean everything and maybe nothing. Well, or just like everything, so it's just hard to pick one. It's like yeah. when you're trying to choose a tea. <laughs> I'm Michael Hobbs. I'm Sarah Marshall. And if you want to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about. And you don't have to, or you could buy, we haven't mentioned this shirt in a really long time, and I think it's our best shirt. You could buy our denouement shirt. Yeah. <laughs> or you could just say denouement in solidarity with the program. And uh, today we are talking about cancel culture. I feel like this is the single most stressful episode we oh have my ever God. done from my perspective. Like, I think in advance, I just like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go in and talk about all my feelings. And that's my promise to you. I don't know <laughs> if I'm gonna figure anything out, but I'm gonna tell you how I feel and what I am scared of. So this is the thing. I have been researching this for over two months. I have 189 pages of notes. I genuinely do not know if this is gonna be one episode or two episodes. Mm-hmm. Me and Sarah are just gonna like talk through it. Yeah. I have some structure. I have some stories I want to tell. But We just both have very deep feelings on this issue and we want to work through them basically is the goal for this. Yeah, to me, like this episode will just feel fake as hell if I do not say at the very beginning, like I am interested Mm. and not like I find this interesting, but like my future is part of this topic. Mm. What I would say is like, I think that the term cancel culture applies to many, many things. Mm -hmm. It's a term that has been co-opted by the right, but also I think... To me, it feels real. And I'm Mm -hmm. afraid of everyone on the internet getting mad at me one day or not everyone, but like some amount that feels like everyone to me, Mm -hmm. not because I think my livelihood would go away, but because it would hurt me psychologically and I have a hard time liking myself. And it's hard to like yourself when everyone has escalated a rhetoric. If even like a dozen people come at you from a place of like you're harmful you're dangerous we can never accept your apology like your toxic waste like mm-hmm. i don't want that to happen to me yeah. it would suck are there specific cases that jump out at you of times where where something has happened to somebody and you're like oh my god this could happen to me well yeah to me the situation natalie Wynn has gone through is really terrifying and she yeah. talked on on the media she said like i've been sexually assaulted and i've been canceled and the cancellation was more traumatic to me mm. personally mm. and like that's terrifying to hear someone say yeah she does important work her channel is contrapoints and like the right loves to act like the left is this unified political force and we're not and we often yeah. aren't because we are fighting with each other the whole time i mean to me the the sort of the central challenge of all of this is this huge mismatch between like the scale of the internet And online feedback. Mm. Like, I think all the time about, like, we have a couple episodes of this show that have a million downloads. And if 1% of our audience, like, fucking hates them and, like, wants us to never record a podcast again, 1%, that's 10,000 people. Wow. If 10,000 people decide to email us, decide to leave replies on every single one of our social media posts, if you're on the receiving end of that, 
The fact that 10,000 people are only like 1% of your audience doesn't fucking matter. No. Like you are experiencing that as this like avalanche of abuse. Your, your brains aren't calculators, unfortunately. Yeah. That's why a computer keeps beating us at Jeopardy. So like you have to constantly remind yourself that like this does not represent my audience. Like this does not represent everybody. But it doesn't feel like that at all. Or like how the people in my life feel about me because of exactly. more people than you are friends with in reality are mad at you or are doing something else that yeah. you're having a hard time processing. You're just like, oh my God, this is what I am to people. Like I'm not yeah. saying that happens to everybody, but like I have insecurity. I am the one person in America who's insecure and it affects <laughs> me that way. Oh, totally. <laughs> me too. I mean, I, I don't do this anymore, but when I used to check our iTunes reviews, my eyes would just skip over all of the five-star reviews as if they didn't yeah. count and go straight to the one-star reviews. I do that too. And I don't know why. It's so weird. It's like, what? I know. They grow on trees? And also like... The vast majority of reviews are positive, but it's like something in my brain is like, oh, no, those don't count. You're like, moron, moron, oh, person who hates me. Yeah, it affects me and I fume about it. I think that you, the reviews that you have actually, like, taken the time to complain about on Twitter have been ones that are critical of me. Like, I think you actually, you get mad on my behalf in a way maybe you don't on your behalf. And like, that's hard too. Yeah, those are those are like the ones where it's like, my dad can beat up your dad. Like some <laughs> of them criticize our guests. Oh yeah. And I'm like, give me your fucking address and I will be there in 15 minutes. Oh, I'm like, I'm like the most peaceful guy. But like, as soon as somebody goes after you or one of our guests or like somebody who we like, I am like ready to like crash my car into their living room. I'm like so mad. And if anyone ever crashes their car into the living room of an acrimonious listener, then like this can be your Sharon Stone like, type you know. basic instinct alibi. <laughs> I also think that another really important structural element of this is that it looks to the outside world like everybody hates you mm. right because other people will be like oh shit like her instagram comments are a bloodbath <sighs> everybody must be really mad at her yeah and then they're like, what's wrong with her? Yes. Should I avoid her? And then articles start appearing in the press that are like, Twitter's really mad at Sarah Marshall. They're like, you're <laughs> wrong about podcasts, really stepped in it, even though that doesn't actually represent that many people. Or they're going to be like, I don't think that we should cancel Sarah Marshall. But then by everyone being like, no, don't cancel Sarah Marshall, like cancel Sarah Marshall trends harder. Oh, yeah. And also, I mean, my sort of like meta comment on all of this, especially after reading so much about it for the last couple of months, is it took society something like a hundred years to fully adjust to the printing press, mm. right? It was this new invention that changed education, it changed politics, it changed religion. And it took a long time and a very like tumultuous time for that transformative new technology to sort of worm its way into all of these institutions. And I think that we're in the middle of that period with the internet. Mm. You know what number I came across this morning? Seven. <laughs> no, what? <laughs> I, I was so shocked by this. There are 22,000 people with more than a million YouTube subscribers. Wow. To me, the most relevant tranche of this to people like us is this Cambrian explosion in the number of public figures. Yes. And the blurring of the lines between private individuals and public figures. Because of the internet, because of, you know, Twitch streamers and Instagram influencers and YouTubers, you have this massive tranche of people who have sort of all of the exposure and the risk 
and the burden of being a public figure, but a lot of them don't actually have the resources to deal with that. 22,000, I guess look this up, is the population of Middletown, Delaware. <laughs> so what if there was just a town in Delaware that was all big YouTubers? I mean, that's LA, basically. Oh, yeah. We already have that. But it's not in Delaware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that we talk about a lot on this show and that I think is really apparently consistently relevant to how human beings kind of assimilate information is we will have a term like cancel culture or human trafficking or hipster back in the day. Mm. And people will walk around with a fairly specific idea in their head of what that is. And then they'll encounter that word and they'll be like, I know what that word means. And really that word means like at least 25 things. Yeah. And it's just hard to clarify like in a public conversation or like, you know, a, like a breaking news item of some kind or another, like what iteration of that word are we using here? Yeah, exactly. I think the perfect parallel to the cancel culture panic is human trafficking, hmm. where we have this term that refers to arranged marriages. It refers to undocumented immigrants who are working in bad working conditions. It refers to children being kidnapped and murdered. If you want to actually address or understand any of the components of that problem, lumping them all together doesn't really help you. Right. And there's like different human rights violations happening and each of them deserves to be yeah. addressed individually. And also, and then I would say the parallel continues because the far right was like, okay, yeah, it can be all those things and that's already confusing and we're going to make stuff up yes. that yeah. has never happened and, that, yeah. and then we're going to say that that's what that phrase means. And right. it's like, what? Like, we were already having a hard time. We're sort of engaged in this like years-long debate now of sort of, is cancel culture real? It's fake. It's real. It's this completely asinine binary because, well, it entirely depends on the definition. Yeah. But so in the interest of trying to untangle all of this vast array of definitions and good and bad faith, I am actually going to try for this entire episode to not use the word cancel. Great. I don't actually think it's a useful way to look at this. I think most of what we're actually talking about in the cancel culture panic is things that we already have terms for, like perfectly reasonable terms for like people being fired or like people being criticized widely. I just think it's actually very easy to talk about all of the phenomena within cancel culture, all of the anxieties underneath it without actually using the term. Hmm. And if it's that easy to talk about it without using the term, then what do we actually need the term for? Yeah. So Sarah, do you have a definition of cancel culture or canceling? Oh God. <laughs> So when I think about the part of what all gets lumped under cancel culture that I personally find worrying, not just because I fear it, but because I feel like it's not helpful to mm -hmm. us where we're at as a country. Mm -hmm. And Natalie Wynn described this in her interview and in on the media and also in her video canceling is basically the process by which you make some kind of a, you know, you speak insensitively or in a way that people read as insensitive or you make, you know, a genuine mistake, which you then attempt to apologize for or mm -hmm. some kind of relatively small misstep. And then people get excited yeah. and people decide that like this misstep is like proof of your true nature. You don't deserve to be contributing to the discourse and everyone has to like disavow you. Yeah. Your work can no longer be consumed. Like everything you do 
is now fruit of the poison tree. Like, right. I think that that is what we talk about to some extent when we talk about cancel culture. I think mm-hmm. that is a more specific thing that we can find better language for. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're going to end up doing for the rest of this episode is talking about sort of how we got here and then trying to break up this term into like more manageable pieces. Let's split this atom and see what's inside of it. Yes, let's. So I realize this is like a very middle school essay thing to do. The Merriam-Webster definition of cancel is canceling and cancel culture has to do with the removing of support for public figures in response to their objectionable behavior or opinions, which I think is a pretty good definition. The Mm -hmm. Fox News definition is when individuals or groups are removed from platforms or lose their livelihoods because their opinions are deemed offensive. Hmm. That use of the passive voice is the first thing that snags for me. And also deemed offensive is an interesting phrase because that's like, that's coded as left. Yes, because who finds things offensive? Exactly. The right just finds things dangerous. Or seditious or, you know, not supporting the troops or whatever. French. So the word, you probably already know this. The word first appears in a 1981 chic song. It's a disco song. Our old friend Niall. Yes, Niall. It's uh, it's called Your Love is Cancelled. Mm-hmm. It seems like one of those words that probably even before this song was just sort of floating around the black community like it was used. And then throughout the decades, it sort of pops its head above the parapet and shows up in various places in pop culture. Mm-hmm. So in 1991, it shows up in the movie New Jack City where there's a drug dealer and he says, like, cancel that bitch. Oh, so everyone stopped following her on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In 2005, 50 Cent uses it in a song. In 2010, Little Wayne uses it in a song. It appears that the sort of the, the modern resurgence of cancel as a commonly used verb comes from a 2014 episode of the show Love and Hip Hop New York, Mm. which is this VH1 reality show And a man and a woman are fighting and she says things that he doesn't like and he sort of gets up from the table and he says, you're canceled. What that verse makes me think of is like Michael Corleone and The Godfather 2 being like, you're dead to me, Fredo. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. Yeah. It's interesting that it starts relationally. This is this is really interesting to me, too, is that it's withdrawing support for someone who you know and who you have a pre-existing relationship with. Or not even support, but like interest. You're like, we don't, this relationship is canceled. Like, you're canceled yes. in my life. Like, I will not be having reruns of you. <laughs> yes, exactly. I just want to stop here and read something from this really excellent piece from Clyde McGrady in The Washington Post. I think it's like a long-standing frustration that sort of like normal-ass terms that go around the black community and have been around for ages end up getting scooped up and get like totally demagogued. Yes, exactly. And like we we move in and we ruin them and render them useless. And then we go gentrify another word once we're done. So this is from Clyde McGrady's piece. Terms such as lit and bay and on fleek, or if you're a little older, fly and funky and uptight, have been mined by white people for their proximity to black cool. The word cool itself emerged from black culture. I do not know what white Americans would sound like if there had never been any black people in the United States, James Baldwin wrote in 1979, but they would not sound the way they sound. With canceled and woke, there's a twist. Not only have these words been appropriated from black culture, they have been weaponized to sneer at the values of many young black liberals. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is really the trajectory of what has happened with this poor word. Yeah. I'm picturing it like Oliver and company now. I know. Little canceled. So basically, I have tried to piece this together from old posts and various academic articles and things that I was able to find on Twitter 
I'm not going to say that this is like the definitive account, but to me, there are three milestones on the road to cancel culture becoming the moral panic term that it is now. The first milestone is the emergence of call-out culture, which I'm sure you remember that phrase. I mean, I know that phrase, but like I couldn't say when it appeared or when people started talking about it or why. It's basically the same as the way that we use cancel culture now. The term basically shifted in 2018. We'll talk about it. Yeah, you're right. God, it's like when they remodel a McDonald's. And you can't remember what the old McDonald's looked like because you never really looked at it. You were just always inside of it. So two of the people who I interviewed for this, one is Meredith Clark, who's a University of Virginia professor who's working on a book about black Twitter. I also interviewed Alyssa Richardson, who's a journalism professor at USC, and she is working on a book about cancel culture. Both of them mentioned that there's a lot of analog antecedents to members of marginalized communities doing call-outs. You know, in the 1970s, you would have black feminists who would, like, make pamphlets and distribute them about how white feminists were ignoring their concerns. Which they were. Yes. This This is a tool that has been used by marginalized populations throughout time because oftentimes you're not in the rooms where decisions are happening. Mm -hmm. So your only option is to sort of go public. You use what you have. And one of the options when you don't have the choice of appealing to legitimized power structures that you don't have access to is just to call on the public in the hopes that like quantity will be the force that you need in this case, I think. Yeah. So the first instance I could find of the word cancel being used as sort of like a main rallying point for one of these campaigns is in 2014, do you remember Stephen Colbert used to sort of like be doing a bit? He would be like satirizing Bill O'Reilly for years. Yeah. And you couldn't do it now, but you could do it 10 years ago or whenever the hell that was. Yeah. I mean, speaking of things you couldn't do now, from the sort of official Colbert Report Twitter account, they send out a tweet, get ready, this is terrible. Mm. It says, I'm willing to show the Asian community I care by introducing the Ching Chong Ding Dong Foundation for Sensitivity to mm. Orientals or whatever. Mm. It's clearly satirical, but it's also just like, don't do that. <laughs> I feel like the closest comparison I can think of and like the structure of that joke is to like whip your hand towards someone as if to slap them and then stop at the last second. Yeah. And be like, I didn't hit you. You know, right. and it's like, yeah, but you really did a good impression of hitting me. Right. So, like, you can't really fault someone for feeling all the adrenaline of an oncoming slap, I right. think. Just after he sends this tweet, there's a woman named Sui Park who sees this tweet and she tweets, The Ching Chong Ding Dong Foundation for Sensitivity to Orientals has decided to call for hashtag cancel Colbert. Mm. Both Alyssa Richardson and Meredith Clark said that hashtags are a really important structural component for Twitter that makes it easier for marginalized groups to sort of be seen by people Mm -hmm. in power because all of a sudden you have this giant swarm of people all using the same message and it shows up on the trending bar. It's like the part in Newsies where Jack goes to talk to Mr. Pulitzer and he's like, look at all those kids out there and they're all yelling at you. Yes. And it works. And to me, a really important structural element that starts to appear at this time is that as sort of more people start using this cancel Colbert hashtag, news outlets start writing about it. 
So there's an article in The Nation. There's an article in The Wall Street Journal. Sui Park is actually asked on TV. She gives interviews on TV about why she started this hashtag. And so it's not only that Twitter becomes this organizing space. It's also that mainstream journalists are seeing these conversations happen. Hmm. There's sort of now like a pretty well-established genre of story on you know, whatever, HuffPost, BuzzFeed, that's basically people on Twitter are mad about whatever. And do you know why that is? It's because you wake up in the morning as an editor and you have to get a certain number of pieces on your website every day. It's exactly. Because you have to keep showing people ads about the one vegetable that this doctor says you should never eat if you want to live to be 97. Yeah, I don't I don't blame journalists for this. Like these are the incentives of digital journalism. No. But even if you're like the 90% of Americans who have nothing to do with Twitter, you're seeing these stories that are essentially just a compilation of like what is happening on Twitter. And just the whole, you know, the economy of online journalism it's incredibly focused on clicks. Yes. And A, writers hardly ever get to pick their own headlines. I only ever got to pick one headline of anything I ever wrote, and it was a travelogue to Graceland that I called Elvis Himselvis. Nice. <laughs> and B, stories don't get written because a writer is sure that the story is important. Stories yeah. get written because a writer needs to make $300. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. I also think another really important aspect in this particular controversy is that after a couple days of this becoming this big thing and becoming kind of controversial, Suey Park starts getting death threats and eventually she gets doxxed and she has to leave Chicago. God. Another sort of thing that I think is really important to keep in mind for all of this cancel culture nonsense, whatever, is that like it's never just one thing happens and then it's over. It's always like a process and there's always yeah. echoes of these online mobs that affect everybody involved. Mm -hmm. She talks about how, you know, she went to stay with friends in New York after her address got leaked. And then like they're out at a bar and there's other people in this bar taking photos of her. Oh my God. And sort of like following her around. And she said sort of since that like, I didn't actually want to cancel the TV show. Right. It's also partly a function of the medium, right? Like Twitter is kind of for just like idle bitching, right? You're like, you got five minutes in the grocery store line, you see some dumb thing and you're like, oh, this is bullshit. You're not necessarily like starting a nationwide campaign to actually cancel a TV show over a single tweet. Right. That tweet, like it was important that someone say it, like the fact that she faced such incredible and terrifying backlash for being like, that's racist. Yeah. <laughs> because it was. Yeah. What's also hard is that like a lot of people just never have a trending tweet. And I think that there is like on the part of people who don't who have never been the focus of that kind of attention it looks really cool. Like, even if it's scary, you're like, everyone wants attention. Yeah. We like to imagine that if a bunch of people are all paying attention to you and not explicitly all trying to kill you at once, mm -hmm. then like, there must be some kind of value add to your life. There must be a sense of like, I'm empowered by this. And it's like, no, like a lot of these, like people can't control how liked or retweeted or engaged with a tweet is like yeah. there are little ways that people try and do it. But like there's a reason why influencer is still a real job that takes work and skill. And one of them is that like it's not innate to know how to get attention or to know what to do with it. In fact, it's very hard. Yeah. And I think more often than not, it yeah. just crashes into people's lives like a comet. Another really important sort of hashtag campaign that happens the year later. Do you remember in 2015 Oscars so white? I do remember this. Yeah, I remember that being something that was getting attention in like the non-Twitter sphere. Yes. Even. 
Both Meredith Clark and Alyssa Richardson mentioned this as a demonstration of the way that Twitter was changing the way that minority groups interact with the rest of the culture. Mm. So in 2015, the Oscars, as they always do, they announce all of the nominees. That year, all of the acting nominees, all, I believe, 20, were white people. Mm. So there's a woman named April Rain, who is not like a famous person. She's a campaign finance lawyer, but she happens to be a like relatively prominent person on black Twitter at the time. She is watching this on TV, getting her kids ready for school, and she just tweets out, Oscars so white, they ask to touch my hair. <laughs> uh. And this becomes like a meme that other people start iterating on. So they use hashtag Oscars so white, they have a perfect credit score. Oscars so white, they wear Birkenstocks in the winter. Okay, as someone who literally has been wearing Birkenstocks with socks around for like the past See? week, like, yes, that is a real burn and it is true. This is our, this is our <laughs> culture. Yes. I accept. <laughs> and then sort of, you know, once this became this meme and became this thing that people were iterating off of, a really fascinating thing happened that prominent actual filmmakers started using this hashtag. So Spike Lee was tweeting about it. And interestingly, Ava DuVernay, whose movie Selma was not nominated for the mm, acting oh my nominees. God. Oh, she was tweeting about it. It's this fascinating thing where it's like a, a sort of an argument or a meme or a take can bubble up from the bottom and actually end up at the top. Yes. And in, in a way that's necessary because the Oscars yes. have been making terrible choices for my whole life and have continued to do yes. so afterwards. Green book. Well, this is what Alyssa Richardson mentioned to me. She calls this social listening, hmm. that what specifically Twitter did was it basically allowed groups to organize in a way that they could be heard by journalists, by mainstream journalists. And by the Oscars, even. Exactly. And so what she said was, you know, of course, this is not the first year that the Oscars were super white. And this was not the first year that black people were mad about it. But in previous eras, what you would have had is you would have had this sort of one-to-one -one communication, right? That the Oscars broadcasts their nominees. And then you can, you know, sit down and write a letter that says your nominees are bullshit. And they'll be like, whatever, I don't even watch these movies. As that letter writer, you have no way of knowing if 25,000 other people are writing exactly the same letter, yes. right? You have no way of organizing all of that anger, whereas what starts to happen on Twitter is Twitter is a many-to-many -many medium. So you can actually see in the replies to the Oscars, like, perfunctory, here's the nominees, you can see dozens of black people being like, this is bullshit, this is bullshit. And you're like, oh, everybody's pissed off about this. Hmm. And very importantly, it allows journalists to see that. And there's something important about, like, the anger of a marginalized group being deemed newsworthy. Yes. Like, and the fact that it's easier for that to happen now. Yes. And they're also able to affect the actual institutions involved. So another thing that Alyssa Richardson said was that, you know, public figures, massive celebrities, big institutions, they've always been judged on moral norms. But typically those norms would have been the norms of their peers, mm. right? If you're a movie star, you're being judged by other movie stars, right? Or Hollywood studios or whatever. But what social media was able to do was shift the moral norms to their audience. Like all of a sudden they were accountable to their audience and their audience was more visible to them. Hmm. It's never useful to talk about technology as like a good thing or a bad thing. It's oftentimes just a shift that includes both things. And I think that what we see with social media, especially with Twitter, 
is that it makes it very easy for a vocal minority to make themselves visible. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that vocal minority is black people with genuine concerns about the Oscars being shitty. And sometimes that vocal minority is a bunch of fucking Nazis that go after a female journalist. Mm -hmm. Again, this is another reason why cancel culture is the wrong way to look at this is we have a platform that allows small groups to make themselves seen. That's what's really going on. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. Mm -hmm. The second milestone on the way to cancel culture becoming a moral panic is the 2015 release of So You've Been Publicly Shamed. I have not read it. It, I think it has a pretty pink cover, and I like that they did that. Yes, it's adorable. So this is a book by John Ronson that is basically a series of case studies of people who've been publicly shamed. The main thing that travels from the book and is featured in a bunch of you know magazine articles and excerpts, like the, the main thing that comes out of this book is the story of Justine Sacco. Do you remember this? Yes. This was in 2013. Can you walk us through what happened? Okay. So Justine Sacco, who was a PR person, mm -hmm. was on a plane to South Africa and she tweeted something like, going to South Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. Wow. That was it. That was it. Word for word, Sarah. It's a pretty short tweet. Yes. She tweeted this and then her plane took off and she apparently didn't want to spend $9 for Oingo Boingo in-flight Wi-Fi or whatever they call it. And then it started trending and it trended for like 12 hours before yeah. she landed. Yeah. And I feel like that's really integral to that. There's also, I mean, you can't overestimate like how big it was, right? It was the number one trending topic worldwide. 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 Her job fired her very quickly and somebody went to the Cape Town airport to film her opening her phone. Wow. I do think that part of the reason this got so big was this uniquely hilarious thing that she tweets this indefensibly racist joke and then gets on an airplane where she can't see what the internet is saying about her for 11 hours. Mm -hmm. Like the main hashtag was, has Justine landed yet? And I think like the comedy of like somebody who there's this giant firestorm around them on the internet, but they are on an airplane and they can't see any of it is just inherently funny. Oh, yeah. If it didn't have that structure, I don't think it would have been that big. If she just said it while she was like waiting at a red light and then everybody yelled at her and she was like, sorry, sorry, and she deleted it, it never would have gotten to the scale that it was at. Right. I think Justine's joke was really bad, but I also think that the response to it was wildly disproportionate. Well, like, I feel like you can recognize something as, like, inappropriate and bad and also recognizably a joke. You're like, eh, I wouldn't do that, buddy. But, like, yeah, I recognize the structure of a joke when I see it. Yes, exactly. I feel comfortable saying, like, regardless of the intent behind it, like, that scale of a response is just something that I don't think that a person deserves for a remark unless it is like overtly, intentionally, agenda-fully hateful. Right. And I can't think of anyone who used Twitter to do that for years and years without <laughs> any significant pushback by the platform. And also what's, what's actually totally amazing to me is that, you know, the, the, the reason this became so big is that there's a writer for Gawker who somehow noticed this tweet and was like, hey, look at this lady saying this dumb thing. And then it exploded. Mm -hmm. What's amazing is you can find somebody with 170 followers saying this earnestly. I am 100% sure that you could have found somebody at the time just like straightforwardly saying, I hope everybody in Africa dies of AIDS. Right. Like there's really odious people online. What, so why is it that that's less compelling? Like what's that about? This to me is, is it's something fascinating about specific 
dynamics of Twitter, that sort of smugness hmm. is much easier to blow up than actual wrongdoing, mm. right? Because it would seem like if there's some random guy who's just like, I hate black people in Africa and I hope they all die. It would be like, well, what's the news there? There's nothing There's nothing hypocritical about that. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Justine Sacco, it was sort of like her smugness or like, oh, she's congratulating herself for being so woke, but she's not. Yeah, there is. Okay, so like I was just rereading Carrie and that book opens famously with Carrie getting her first period in the school showers, not knowing what it is. Oh, yeah. And the other girls like being kind of shocked like starting to advance on her and throw tampax and pads at her and chant, plug it up, plug it up. Yeah. I, th- I think that bullying is part of our nature as pack animals. Like humans are pack animals. Yeah. We like to feel comfortable that we're a member of the herd. And it is part of our identity as beings. That, like if we see someone who is shameable, it feels good to shame them. And it only and it only feels good if they react. Like if you go after someone who's just a racist and if you're like, you're a racist, we'll be like, you're a snowflake. And then right. just like go on with their day. Then like it doesn't compare to throwing a tampon at someone, right. does it? Also, we feel the need to police the norms of groups that we belong to. Yes. Those are the waters that I'm swimming in. Those are the people that I see. Those are the people that I feel like I can influence. Those are the people you feel represented by also. So like you don't want someone going out and like by proxy making you look like a dick wheel. I mean, (laughs) it is really remarkable to me how many of these quote unquote cancellations are just fucking Twitter. Mm. It's like the specific dynamics of Twitter. Hmm. It's not cancel culture. Like Americans are different now than they used to be. It's not like the left is more punitive or censorious or less capable of nuance than we used to be. It's fucking Twitter. Mm-hmm. Twitter incentivizes people to collapse nuance, to gang up on people, to take people out of context, to save their 10-year-old utterances as if they are canonical. Mm. It is very notable to me that people do not really get canceled on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. Yeah, that like Twitter is like the Texas panhandle in terms of like hospitability for fire. (laughs) And Instagram is like, yeah, you can start a fire there, but it's not like perfectly primed to start fires if you have like one errant cigarette butt out a window. Exactly. Take this with a salt bay size sprinkling of salt because I'm just quoting (laughs) like something I read in National Geographic 15 years ago. Throughout time, you can consistently find people and remains of civilizations where people were living in groups of about 200. Yeah. Because 200 seems to be, if not the number we're evolved for than a number we do really well at. Because there's enough people where the genetic pool doesn't get compromised, I assume, and you don't feel like you know everyone super well. Like, I think, you know, we're able to maintain maybe like 10 close friendships, something like that. But these people aren't strangers either. Right. On a fundamental level, I think all of us all the time are punching way above our weight in terms of the beings that we evolved to be. Yeah. I want us to, like, give ourselves credit for how hard what we're asking ourselves to do is. Oh, yeah. And this, to me, is the fundamental paradox, is that, you know, very little of the American population is on Twitter. It's only one in five Americans has a Twitter account. And of those, the median user of Twitter sends two tweets a month. And they have like 33 followers, I bet. Yeah. 
And like a lot of people don't tweet about politics. They tweet about sports or they tweet about music or they tweet about D&D. There's, there's other studies that show that 80% of the tweets are sent by 10% of the users. Mm. It's a tiny percent of the U.S. population, but it's a vast percent of the American journalism apparatus. It sure is, Mike, because none of us have any job security and we've well, exactly. replaced it with Twitter. And also, and this is like from a purely self-interested perspective, like this is where the editors are. Yeah, and this is how you get people to approach you and be like, it seems like you really love jigsaw and you can be like i do well exactly a lot of people get messages on twitter being like can you expand this tweet into a op-ed can you expand this twitter thread into a piece for us like it's this place where the cultural consensus is forming Mm -hmm. and it's a place that is perfectly designed to take things out of context to blame you for things you didn't say to have a mob go after you Hmm. so to me it's like one of my central beefs with this entire cancel culture thing is the word culture right like nothing has changed in america like you can look at public polling data you can look at all kinds of actual like population level surveys that show that most people are actually really uncomfortable with people being fired for old tweets Mm -hmm. like there's no evidence that americans are less capable of nuance or more punitive than they used to be it's just all of the nation's journalists (laughs) spend time on this platform yeah and then if you're like if you're an op-ed columnist or just any kind of a journalist or trying to be a public figure and therefore like tell people people what you think the temperature of the country is and if you are feeling attacked for whatever reason then like you will be like oh my god americans just want to attack everyone all the time i'm I Brett Stevens. exactly and it's funny because i'm like I, i'm like this is cause for concern i'm scared i want to protect my hurtable feelings like i am doing my best and i'm trying but i want people to yeah. like approach me in a way that implies they want me to learn and get better and not that they want right. me to shut the fuck up I think that people take that feeling way too far. And I think that a lot of them work for the New York Times op-ed section. Well, exactly. A a lot of this really does come down to people feeling attacked and casting that or perceiving that as a national crisis. Mm. And I think that, you know, that conversation by definition is being led by public figures. Like it's being led by people like us who have a podcast or people who write for national outlets or people who, who work on YouTube. Yes. When actually, you know, the vast majority of Americans aren't public figures. But there are 22,000 YouTubers with a million subscribers or more. Yes. Which probably means that there's more people who are, as a job, YouTubers than there are coal miners in this country. Yeah. It does stress me out that, like, becoming a public figure of some kind to some kind of audience online is one of the more viable economic options available to young people now. And that's one of one of the things that they have to deal with. No, absolutely. And, you know, most moral panics have some nugget of truth at the center of them. And I think the nugget of this one is that it is a lot harder to be a public figure than it used to be. The expectations of celebrities have completely changed. We now have expectations of access, expectations of authenticity. People are forming these parasocial relationships with, you know, the YouTuber whose video they watch or whoever. And that's this double-edged sword where there's this extra access, there's this extra level of intimacy, but that intimacy can sour really quickly. And the same platforms, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, where you're supposed to form this intimacy are also the platforms where the intimacy can turn on you. Right. You learn how to communicate in the forum that you're in. And I think that's part of it, too. No, that's true. Yeah. I don't know. 
know. I think it's good that I can have a larger conversation with people I don't know personally about that. But I don't think that like every conversation has to happen in that forum. And I think lately yeah. we feel like they do. And, and often they really do because we're all alone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact that we're all trapped inside and that the world has gotten this unprecedented injection of anxiety is not helping. No. But I also think that sort of understanding these dynamics and being anxious about them is actually a pretty new thing. When I was looking back at sort of early understandings of the dynamics of online abuse, most of the anxieties for the first like 10, 15 years of the internet were around cyberbullying. Mm. This idea of sort of teenagers texting each other with abuse or like setting up a mean Facebook group dedicated to hating somebody. But this idea of sort of a normal person being plucked out of obscurity and then mobbed by this, you know, thousands of people on Twitter, this stuff wasn't really very well known until... 2014, 2015. Mm -hmm. And Justine Sacco kind of became this like totemic example of what could happen to anyone, right? This idea that we're sort of all one tweet away from losing our jobs, right? And I've always been kind of annoyed at the centrality of the Justine Sacco story to kind of the rise of cancel culture. Like whenever you watch a sort of cancel culture documentary or somebody's talking about like the origin of the term, there's always like the Justine Sacco section. And there's two reasons why this always bugged me. The first is that it isn't actually happening that much. It isn't actually something that's all that common. Hmm. I actually interviewed a labor lawyer about this, a guy named Alex who's worked for civil rights commissions in a couple states. He said that he's worked on something like 550 cases throughout his career. He's seen two where social media was involved at all. Mm. Most employers don't monitor employees' social media accounts in any concerted way because that would be an insane use of their time. Most companies have hundreds, thousands of employees. They're not going to hire people to sort of look over, like, what are they posting on Instagram? It makes no sense. Yeah. And when social media is involved in somebody being fired, it's almost always something like Somebody adds their boss on Facebook, they forget that they did that, they call in sick on a Wednesday, and then they post on Facebook like, hey, I just ran 10K or something like that. Like it's it's directly related to work. Right. What's amazing is there's actually a lot of extremely unfair reasons that people are fired in America all the time. And social media posts, social media mobs is like not in the top 10 or the top 20. Mm -hmm. And of course, there have been, you know, Justine Sacco style cases where these huge internet mobs form and people are bombarding an employer with emails and eventually the employer caves and fires their employee. But there's no iceberg of those underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. When there's an internet mob as large as Justine Sacco's or even like a fraction of that large, people notice, journalists notice because journalists are on fucking Twitter all the time. Right. It reminds me of the kidnappings during the stranger danger panic where the sort of the meta narrative that we were getting was that hundreds of thousands of children were disappearing and being murdered and we weren't hearing about it, right? That the media wasn't reporting on it. When in fact, small children being kidnapped and murdered by strangers is a story almost every time it happens. And I think it's the same thing here where it's like, Internet mobs getting people fired is rare enough that this becomes a thing almost every time it happens. Right. I feel like the kind of conservative take on cancel culture is like, we have no way of knowing how many thousands of people are fired by Twitter mobs every day. And it's like, no, we know. Because yeah, we know. the main thing Twitter is good for is preserving every single fucking thing that happens or doesn't happen on there. <laughs> yes. There's a fossil record of like everyone who's ever shouted at you. Yeah. And this is actually kind of one of the other reasons why... 
this, you know, it could happen to anyone, everybody needs to be worried about this narrative bugs me so much, is that if you look at the kinds of people that are actually facing online harassment, the people that are actually losing their jobs and being hounded off the internet, it is almost always women and people of color. Yeah. I was reminiscing yesterday about a curvy wife guy. Do you remember oh. this? Oh, my God. Yeah. The guy who was like, I love my curvy wife. Yeah. I love my dead gay son. I know. He wrote this <laughs> thing that was like, I love my curvy wife. Yeah. Like, she's unconventionally attractive. And then, like, there is a picture of her and she's just, like, super hot. Yeah. Essentially, what the Internet decided was that he was asking to receive approval for being attracted to his hot wife. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, look how hot my wife is. And also, I'm a good person for being attracted to my hot wife. Yeah, which none, none of you jokers would. I know. And then everyone just kind of made fun of him for several days. And I'm sure that that sucked for him. Or maybe it didn't. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't recall that being a conversation that was like, he has to apologize. Yeah. Let's find his employer. You don't see this happening to adult men on the internet the way you yeah. see it happening to most other people. Yeah, exactly. There isn't the sense of like punishment. Yeah. I do feel like, you know, just the, the way that power functions on the internet, like it's able to do new things because of technology, but like yeah. it's still power kind of cutting across the lines that we have in within the society that we bring exactly. to that technology. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So that's the second milestone. Basically, there's just this sort of bubbling anxiety about like, normal people can get targeted by mobs. The third milestone is the Me Too movement. Mm. Everyone sort of knows this story already, but just the broad outline. The phrase Me Too was sort of coined by a woman named Tarana Burke, who was a community organizer and sort of racial justice advocate. She started using the phrase in the 1990s, basically because she noticed that like all of the women that she was working with on like various other unrelated issues had all experienced sexual abuse. And she started using the phrase Me Too as like a way to build solidarity between survivors of abuse. Like we've all gone through this. Like this is this is a common thread that links us. Mm -hmm. And so she started an NGO in 2006 whose sort of tagline slogan was Me Too. Hmm. There weren't hashtags then, but like this was a phrase that went around MySpace. Oh, really? Yeah, it was like a thing. Wow. But I think this was like before we had like news feeds and stuff. So it was just like on people's right. profiles, but like there was no way to sort of organize those thoughts. It's so weird. It's like why? watching it's like evolution it's like watching a single-celled organism like slowly kind of evolve into something bigger as the yeah. the primordial soup gets less hostile toward it and also such an example of like how these structural elements of these online platforms are like very important for what gets yeah. discussed and like the views of reality that we come to hold mm. and so of course the phrase re-emerged in 2017 on october 5th we have the allegations against Harvey Weinstein. The first New York Times article comes out. Ten days later, the actress Alyssa Milano tweeted, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. I remember this week on the internet. Yeah, it's. I have a very clear memory of that. I remember I was in mid to late October in, in Texas doing some reporting and was just kind of stressed out and exhausted at the end of the day. And I like went to a Whole Foods because mm -hmm. I find like the cafeteria of a Whole Foods very soothing. Yes. That's when I remember reading about the whole Weinstein saga. That story in itself, I think, was also unprecedented because like something stuck. Yeah. But also it was so clear to me that like he was operating in a culture where like 
of course you go into being a producer because you can assault all the young actresses you want. And basically it's fine. And I remember his defense was like, it was the seventies. And you're like, I, I know everyone now is able to say that that makes no sense, but like, I know 20 years ago, you could have said that and probably it would have worked out for yeah, you. you yeah. know? Cause there, there was, <laughs> so it's like that case itself. And then the, the kind of me too hashtag turned movement, mm-hmm. they felt like two hands ripping apart the fabric of the universe at that moment oh, in yeah. a really great way. And one of the things I can't get over is, you know, I started looking into a bunch of sort of timelines of this and within a month, you had accusations against 200 people. Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., Al Franken. It all happens in this extremely short amount of time. This reminds me of one of my favorite things we talked about on this show in a very early episode where we discussed Francine Hughes, the burning bed, the concept of battered woman syndrome, and basically this weird cultural moment in kind of the late 70s, early 80s, where a couple of women in relatively high profile cases had received what the public deemed to be rather lenient sentences for killing their abusive husbands. And over and over again, you began to hear like in editorials and speeches, the phrase open season, it's going to be open season on men. And it's like, okay, do you think that all men deserve to be murdered or do you think that all women are murderers? Right. Which is it? It's got to be one. And I feel like we had something similar in the moment of Me Too, this idea of like... Oh my God, yes. Yeah. But please take this ball and run with it. I mean, this entire episode is sort of a biography of the anxieties underneath the cancel culture moral panic. My, I'm sure, inaccurate memory was that like 10 minutes... After we found out about Harvey Weinstein and we like gave a name to the Me Too movement, we started getting these like, has the Me Too movement gone too far articles? Yes. Immediate explosion of anxiety among especially men, but sort of everybody at the head of any of these institutions of like, they can come after anyone and they can ruin your career and these huge consequences. And I mean, my impression from going back and reading a bunch of these old articles is that we got the re-emergence of almost exactly the same discourse that we had around date rape in the 1990s. This idea that sort of the feminists are coming for you and like they are not subject to any reason whatsoever. Right. So we have, you know, Caitlin Flanagan says in The Atlantic that, you know, the Me Too movement covers everything from rape to bad dates. Mm. She says, apparently there's a whole country full of young women who don't know how to call a cab. They're angry and temporarily powerful. And last night, they destroyed a man who didn't deserve it. This was in response to the Aziz Ansari article. Yeah, you knew where I was going with this. Yeah. Yes. This, I think looking back, this was actually a huge linchpin because the Aziz Ansari allegations were the case that the Me Too fretters were waiting for. Yeah. They were waiting for something that they could pin this Me Too has gone too far argument on. Yeah. And as soon as that happened, you had... Dozens of articles saying like, whoops, that's the one. Let's shut this whole thing down. Right, right. It's like when you're you're throwing a party with someone who really doesn't want to have a party and then like someone double dips a pretzel and they're like, whoop, okay, everybody out. (laughs) We can't have a party anymore. It's gone too far. This is me planning every party. I'm like, oh, somebody's a vegetarian. We better just cancel the whole party. It's too hard. (laughs) Like any excuse. (laughs) But yeah, can you take us through this narrative? Because I think we need to hear this story. So, okay. A couple months after the Weinstein allegations and this avalanche of other dudes going down, we get an allegation in Babe.net by a woman named Grace. That's a pseudonym Mm -hmm. who met the actor Aziz Ansari. 
at a party and they were flirty and chatty and fun and they were texting and he invites her to dinner and they go to dinner and it's fine. And then they go back to his house and according to her, he has denied all of this. Mm -hmm. As soon as they walk into his house, he starts like making out with her. He sort of sits her up on the kitchen counter. He starts just like going very fast in a way that she's uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. And she sort of semi sort of goes along with it. But at two different points, she tells him to stop. So after they sort of do various like making out foreplay stuff for a while, she goes to the bathroom, stays there for like five minutes, comes back out and is like, hey, can we just slow down? I don't know if I want to do everything tonight. And he's like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Mm -hmm. And then they sit down and then he starts making a move on her again. Mm -hmm. He goes down on her at various points. She goes down on him at various points. That's sort of as far as it goes. And then again, she's like, can we please just stop? I really don't want to go this far. Like, let's put our clothes back on and like watch TV. Mm. And so they sit there and they watch TV. And again, he sort of starts initiating this again. And for the third time, she's like, I'm really uncomfortable. And eventually she just says, like, I'm leaving. He calls her an Uber. She goes home. Mm -hmm. the, the, the thing that frustrated me about it was that as soon as this comes out, we get this massive wave of articles that basically say, like, well, we can't conflate what Harvey Weinstein did with what Aziz Ansari did. It's like, well, who's, who was doing exactly. that, Exactly. No one was doing that. Right. Like, if you, if you read what actual feminists, like, prominent feminist commentators were saying at the time, they were all insisting, they were like, this is not the same as what Harvey Weinstein did. This is also bad, but they are different levels of bad. And, like, no one was actually doing the thing that, like, dozens of articles immediately started scolding people for doing. So I haven't read this article since it came out, but I followed it closely at the time. And what I... I, what to me was kind of the takeaway from it was that the publication and the journalist hadn't adequately protected their source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think the article does position it as like, this is part of the the cultural wave we're having now. And look at this fucking guy. And like, yeah, I think that something that a lot of people suspected was part of the editorial process for that story. And I think also helped, you know, create the response that people ultimately had was that this website that nobody had really heard of had kind of perhaps cynically seized on this cultural moment to try and yeah. come out with a blockbuster allegation against someone important. And yeah. if that's the case, then that is a flaw in journalism. Yeah. That's a problem with an industry. That's not a problem with a movement. I know. I think the way that, like, you know, that Caitlin Flanagan article and others like it that responded to this piece with the idea of, like, it's so terrible that these young women expect to not be sort of attacked all the time. Yeah. It's like, no, it's not. Like, <laughs> I want people yeah. to not be attacked on dates. I want young people to be able to go on dates, especially with, you know, like famous people. Mm -hmm. I want them to enter situations where like their affirmative consent and their excited consent is expected by someone. Yeah. This whole concept of sex being treated like you have stolen something that belongs to someone and they're going to take it back from you tonight. Yeah. It's not good. And like, I think that we could have had a much better conversation about why older women were scolding younger women for not wanting to have yeah. dates like that. Yeah. It's also one of the first appearances of this sort of panicky aspect of the cancel culture panic where Flanagan says in her piece that this woman had destroyed Aziz Ansari. You've destroyed this man. Okay. We let's let's see how things play out, Caitlin. Yeah. As many people have pointed out, Aziz Ansari was, I believe, the top paid 
stand-up comedian in 2018, the year after this allegation came out. Mm-hmm. His TV show was renewed. He continues to do stand-up. Like, I, I do think that it's it, it's worth taking seriously the fact that, like, this did materially affect his reputation. You can't act like it had no effect. Like, just because it didn't seem to affect his finances, it didn't affect him at all. Of course it did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what you see in these articles is this constant invocation of, like, you've destroyed this man's career. And that's just not true. This is the kind of verbiage that you hear in families that want to hush up child abuse or institutions that want to hush up child abuse. Yes. It feels like putting someone in a position, like, familially... Or like at a university, like say, you know, you're you're sexually assaulted by someone who's about to get the big football scholarship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you could tell that you could come forward about what Chad did to you, but like you'd be ruining his entire future. Do you really want that? And it's like, don't put people in that position. Like as a society, it is our job to have more speeds than nothing and life destroyed. But so we get a Barry Weiss column in the New York Times called Aziz Ansari is guilty of not being a mind reader. Mm. And it says, yes, Mr. Ansari is a wealthy celebrity with a Netflix show, but he had no actual power over the woman professionally or otherwise. And lumping him in with the same movement that brought down men who ran movie studios and forced themselves on actresses or the factory floor supervisors who demanded sex from female workers trivializes what Me Too first stood for. Well, you know, when a guy takes you to his house, that's a power differential. Exactly. When a guy is a guy, that's a power differential. When someone's famous, when someone's rich. Yeah. I'm so sick of it. I was so sick of this at the time, this Mm -hmm. idea of like, don't complain, little lady, because other people have it worse. And we can only talk about that right now. It's like, okay. And it really, to me, is kind of demeaning to the the whole, the long-lasting concept of Me Too, which was not invented to describe film magnates. Yes. You immediately have this idea that, like, because Harvey Weinstein, because Aziz Ansari, because Kevin Spacey, anybody can accuse their boss of sexual harassment and, like, that guy will be taken down by the media. And it's like, that's not how it works. Yeah, the media doesn't care about Kevin. Exactly. If you're a low-wage worker at, like, a Wendy's and your boss is, like, a fucking creep who's groping you and you go to the local newspaper about that, they're not going to write about it. There's not going to be a Twitter hashtag because no one has heard of Kevin. It implies a very sweet worldview to believe that consequences anywhere mean consequences everywhere. Exactly. Which Which they they don't. don't. (laughs) So there's a... Op-ed by Margaret Atwood, a kind of infamous op-ed now. Oh, yeah. She says, the Me Too movement is a symptom of a broken legal system. Margaret, you're Canadian. All too frequently, women and other sexual abuse complainants couldn't get a fair hearing through institutions, including corporate structures, so they used a new tool, the internet. This has been very effective and has been seen as a massive wake-up call. But what next? If the legal system is bypassed because it is seen as ineffectual, what will take its place? Who will be the new power brokers? In times of extremes, extremists win. I feel like this is just Margaret Atwood writing a column that she could have just written in one sentence. And that sentence was, I feel old. I know. (laughs) I think this is a really important aspect of the current cancel culture panic. This idea that there's like a mob sort of right at the gates. You know, they have no sense of proportion. They have no understanding of evidence. And they can go after anybody at any time. Like, that becomes the construction that eventually becomes cancel culture. We don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us and this monster is mysterious at least. I know. I was <laughs> I was hoping you were going to do that. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I had the animated, like, I had that scene in my head while I was really? saying that. 
<laughs> I wanted you to bring Gaston into this. You know, and every last inch of me is, is covered with hair. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I fear mobs. I do think that the mob is real. And I think there's something true about kind of our attempts to communicate in large groups about that, too. We're mm -hmm. just like so much of the show is about how, like, politicians cynically create public misunderstandings to push their agendas and yeah. sort of misleading journalism, misleading studies. So, like, people are dangerous when they're misled. Mm -hmm. I guess my feeling is that, like, if as a society we had more ways of dealing with credible accusations of sexual assault than, like, this person is inhuman, let's throw them into an abyss. Right, right. I just feel like there should be room to say, like, a lot of men are raping people and a lot of other men are fucking creeps. Yeah. If we're so afraid of, of like criminalizing or pathologizing behavior that's so widespread, we're worried about of like we're going to run out of men. Then it's like, Jesus Christ, like, let's yeah. have men not be like this. Like, yeah. Let's work on that. And like there's this whole field of misconduct where it's like maybe we need to learn to ask for something more than just like. I don't know, like we need to learn how to recognize misconduct and teach people to be less dangerous. That's what I think. Yeah. yeah. I also, I mean, part of me feels like the entire concept of cancellation is itself counterfeit because to cancel someone, you have to take away something that they had. Hmm. Whereas a much larger problem in society is people never being given something in the first place. Hmm. Like it's it's basically impossible to cancel like a transgender executive of a Fortune 500 company because there are no transgender executives of Fortune 500 companies, right? Because when you come in for the interview, they say that you're trans and they don't hire you. And part of me feels like structurally, the entire construction of the cancel culture moral panic is people in power who are afraid of losing that power. Hmm. So the reason I picked these is because I think each of these milestones illustrates a very important set of anxieties among people in power. First of all, we have the rising prominence and power of left-wing social movements, especially online. And we have this sort of inchoate sense among the population at large that like, ooh, the internet can sort of come for people, right? That like normal people can lose their jobs. Normal people can get targeted by mobs. And then we also have after Me Too, we have this construction that like there's a mob waiting to pounce on any perceived slight, right? If you flirt with a coworker in the wrong way, you too are going to be targeted by this literal witch hunt. It's also like, I gotta say, the misuse of the term witch hunt. I know. Witch hunts. This is a bit of trivia from an ex-Puritan scholar. Mm. Hunt witches. They are not posses of witches that hunt down men. <laughs> Sometimes you have to clarify that. I it's feel not like. hocus pocus. Like they don't <laughs> sing a song to enchant you and then put you in jail. I wish. I also think that what's interesting to me about the mixture of these three milestones, right, and these three social anxieties is this is where we get the vast conflation of completely different things. Mm. You know, something like Oscars So White has nothing to do with cancellation. No, the whole point is like we would like to keep the Oscars yes. and therefore, you know, they maybe could live up to some standards yes. once in a while. It's just basically like left-wing people have concerns. Right. This to me is 
a process that really accelerates around 2018, 2019. This is when Republicans, I think, realize that they can just fucking call anything cancel culture. Right. In the 2020 election campaign, the RNC, like the official Republican National Committee, put out a resolution condemning cancel culture. Yeah. During his impeachment, one of Donald Trump's lawyers calls it constitutional cancel culture. (laughs) And the one that bugs me like way more than it should is Republican elected leaders start referring to sort of these debates over Confederate statues as cancel culture. They're trying to cancel Robert E. Lee. Okay, you can't cancel a statue. It's it's not a person. Well, also, to me, it's like these are just completely normal debates about historical memory. Like, every country is engaged in a debate at all times about its history and which historical figures to commemorate. I mean, it's also really interesting that, like, in America, we assume that statues just are of generals on horses and Mm. it's like there are all kinds of people you can make statues about i feel like we've been selling ourselves short in our statue game dude mildred muhammad yeah exactly this period 2017 2018 2019 is also when we have the resurgence of the oversensitive college liberal Hmm. so in 2018 there's this woman christina hoff summers she's one of those people who's like very clearly a conservative she works for a right-wing think tank but she does this shtick where she's like i'm a democrat and i'm a progressive and a feminist but the gender wage gap doesn't exist but campus rape is overblown like she just says conservative things but she always prefaces it with this fake i'm a democrat well yeah yeah and also like anyone can self-identify as a feminist you know, so like you can say I'm a feminist and all kinds of stuff. Exactly. So in 2018, she is on the campus of Lewis and Clark in your backyard. Yes. And activists like people, you know, before she gives a speech, they circulate an open letter saying that she's a fascist for these right wing beliefs. And during the lecture, they it's like 10 or 15 students stand up and sort of chant her down. Mm -hmm. She actually is able to give most of the lecture. But they essentially demand, they're like, you're going to keep talking and there's not going to be a Q&A period and we want to ask you tough questions and you're sort of stalling for time. So they sort of stand up and yell and are like, why aren't you getting to the Q&A period? We want to have some discussion about this. There are videos of this incident that go viral and it becomes this massive rallying point on the right. Like, look what Hmm. the left-wing students want to do. They can't handle any debate, blah, blah, blah. This is from a GQ article called The Free Speech Grifters. It says... The news of Summer's slightly curtailed lecture was hyped in at least 11 outlets, including Breitbart, The National Review, and two separate opinion pieces in The New York Times. Summers herself tweeted about the event's coverage at least 70 times and scored a Wall Street Journal piece out of the ordeal. The New York Times ones always hurt the most because you really expect journalism from them. I know. I think that, like... We're, We're taking for granted in these editorials and so on the idea that it is unproductive to be shouted at by college students. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Like, I have a friend who, Phyllis Schlafly, came to their college when mm-hmm. they were there. She was still alive at the time. And I think there was some amount of protesting. Mm-hmm. I would not say that it's like it would be a bad or unnecessary or unproductive thing for Phyllis Schlafly to be shouted at by college students a little bit. Oh, yeah. Sometimes when college students shout at you, it like makes you think. I mean, this is speech. <laughs> like, 
Maybe you don't like it and like maybe you think it's rude, but like standing up in the middle of somebody's speech or, you know, standing up and turning your back or chanting them down, that's speech. Like no one's throwing beer bottles at her. Right. It's also fascinating to me as a case because first of all, Christina Hoff Summers gave dozens of lectures at various colleges around the country throughout the course of that year with no incident. So it's not like her free speech is being curtailed of like she can't speak anywhere. They're shouting her down. It's like this happened literally once. And also, if you look at the footage, like this footage that goes viral, like you won't believe how bad these college students are, a lot of the college students in the room are like, hey, let her finish. So it's not as if like college students as a class are like, we can't handle tough ideas. A lot of other college students were like, we don't like these tactics. We think you should let her speak even though we disagree with her. Yes, college students are, are different from each other. Yes. So like all of these slippery slope arguments depend on the idea that there are no internal checks and balances. And if this happens on one college campus, that like the entire campus is going to just like burn a speaker in effigy. And that's just not true. There's tons of debates within college students of like how to deal with bad ideas, how to deal with speakers who you don't like coming to campus. Mm -hmm. So I found a very good 538 essay by Perry Bacon Jr. who talks about sort of the reemergence of cancel culture as like a very standard Republican culture war grievance. He says, focusing on cancel culture and woke people is a fairly easy strategy for the GOP to execute because in many ways it's just a repackaging of the party's long-standing backlash approach. Hmm. For decades, Republicans have used somewhat vague terms to tap into and foment resentment against traditionally marginalized groups like black Americans who are pushing for more rights and freedoms. This resentment is then used to woo voters, mostly white, who are wary of cultural, demographic, and racial change. Mm -hmm. Very standard stuff, and it's a way to unite the Republican base and divide the left. Because everybody on the left, liberals, were all fighting about, like, is cancel culture real? Should these students have done it? Like, I think that these students were dumb. Or, like, I think these students were smart. Or whatever. So we're fighting about this. And then the Republicans, who have gradually and increasingly become the party of white grievance, are unified around, like, well, the black kids and the trans kids and the teenagers are trying to stop you from holding your views. Hmm. This is the function that it serves in society at this point. Yeah. And there's something about the idea of unseating patriarchs in there, too. Like hmm. this idea, like, I think the right offers you impartial consolation for all that it's taking from you is like, you have security in your role. Your role will go unchanged. This is mm -hmm. the power you get to have. And no one can take it from you because it's the power of patriarchy or masculinity or whatever. Yeah. Even as we take all your money and give you cancer. Right. And, you know, a lot of these things are like the stakes are just achingly low. It's like a speaker didn't get to give her talk or like a statue that you've never really noticed before gets taken down and replaced with something else. It's very dependent on these sort of symbolic slights. This also like can become a thing because it's like college students yelling at a grown up. Yes. So according to like the natural order is older and therefore yes. more powerful than them. And because I feel like, OK, I constructed most of my life around not getting yelled at by any old men. Mm. I'm afraid of getting yelled at by old men, and they're afraid of getting yelled at by college students. And yeah. I'm also afraid of getting yeah. yelled at by college students, honestly, but I'm not going <laughs> to make that like my defining trait. It, it has nothing to do with who's right. It's just who's in power. Yes, it is abundantly clear what is actually going on here. And, you know, what frustrates me and we've seen this with like every episode we've ever done, is when there's these very clear moral panics being whipped up by the right, the mainstream sort of establishment media, rather than trying to disentangle this 
and really sort of bring the context to it of like, well, there is a nugget of something real here, but there's also a huge amount of air being pumped into it by bad faith actors. Mm -hmm. What most mainstream news sources start doing also around 2019 is just repeating and extending Republicans framing. So this is when you start getting, you know, the infamous letter in Harper's that's talking about this broad sense of censoriousness on the left. And this is when you start seeing these endless articles in The Atlantic about campus wokeness gone mad. And I think even when progressive media manages to kind of debunk these things, or even when they do bring more context to it, the sheer amount of attention that is paid to this issue starting in 2019 just reinforces the idea that it is an issue of national concern. And so instead of untangling all of the wildly different events that this term is now being applied to, what the progressive media ends up doing is just extending it even further. And progressives can kind of be like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. I don't want to cancel everybody. I'm, I don't want mob justice. I'm against that. So in 2019, the New York Times publishes an article called Tales from the Teenage Cancel Culture. What is cancel culture really like? Ask a teenager. They know. Mm. This is the opening anecdote. A few weeks ago, Neelam, a high school senior, was sitting in class at her Catholic school in Chicago. After her teacher left the room, a classmate began playing Bump and Grind, an R. Kelly song. Neelam, 17, had recently watched the documentary series Surviving R. Kelly. She said it had been emotional to take in as a black woman. Neelam asked the boy and his cluster of friends to stop playing the track, but he shrugged off the request. It's just a song, she said he replied. She was appalled. They were in a class about social justice. They had spent the afternoon talking about Catholicism, the common good, and morality. The song continued to play. That classmate, who was white, had done things in the past that Neelam described as problematic, like casually using racist slurs, not name-calling, among friends. After class, she decided he was canceled, at least to her. <laughs> her decision didn't stay private. She told a friend that week that she had canceled him. She told her mother, too. She said that this meant she would avoid speaking or engaging with him in the future because he wouldn't change his mind and was beyond reason. Oh, God, I cancel people all the time, according to this article. Yes, this is my fucking entire beef with this. It's like we're now classifying like a boy was a dick and you don't want to talk to him anymore as canceling. I mean, to me, what's important is like it doesn't even matter if objectively we decide that like he was a dick objectively. It doesn't matter. Like you... Get to decide who is in your life and who yes. is not. That's a human right. Thank you. <laughs> it's like, it's so, this is so typical to me of like once these terms become sort of floating around in the ether of the culture, it's like, let's just apply it to this other random thing. Mm. One of the other anecdotes from the story is a guy who was quote unquote canceled from his group of friends because he called one of them a homophobic slur. So like friends kicked somebody out, which is probably one of the oldest human behaviors in existence. The oldest human behavior. <laughs> like as soon as there were two people, there was friendship. And as soon as there were three people, there was people being like, uh, Chad's being kind of a dick. Let's yes. kind of avoid him tomorrow. There's also a girl who goes to high school and her friends from middle school don't talk to her anymore. Oh my God, Mike. I just uh, realized I've been a victim of cancel culture my entire life. That's the thing. This happened to me. This happened to like 60% of people who went to high school. I mean, if we're going to talk about how like uh, being a teenager is rough, then like, yes, let's do an article about that. It's really hard. And only got harder after this one came out. This this is such a sign of moral panic to me when it's like we're making completely normal human behavior exotic somehow. I don't know why 
we need to do this. Like, this is just a story about people being people. I think because newspapers need to subsidize real journalism by making stuff up. <laughs> so, yes, that is, uh, that, that brings us up to date. Here we are. Here we are. So, cancel culture is probably one of the top three most important animating issues to conservatives. Mm. And it's becoming a pretty important issue to liberals as well. It's something that has kind of sprung into the left-wing imagination. And I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know if there's a way to talk about it on the left without reinforcing the fake version of it on the right. Yeah, I'm of a couple of minds about this, which is like, I'm perfectly comfortable not using the term sex trafficking, not using sex offender because both of them break down to more specific things and what specific thing you mean mm-hmm. matters tremendously because mm-hmm. it's like if someone's a sex offender it's like were they convicted of assaulting someone or were they convicted of public urination right i feel like what i'm lacking like i would be ready to let the right have it mm-hmm. if we had more and better terminology for the specific things that it breaks down to which i think is what we need right i want terminology for the thing that happens on the left where you know, someone makes misspeaks or makes a relatively minor mistake or kind of, you know, steps in it to whatever extent and then attempts to apologize and then kind of isn't allowed to apologize. Right. You know, what would you call it? Like, what would you what would you call what happened to Natalie Wynn without using the word cancel? I really don't know. I I can't think of language for it because I feel like I don't understand it well enough if I haven't been on the receiving end of it in a sense. Right. It feels to me like that kind of behavior, like kind of pack animal behavior. Yeah. You see someone doing something that to you has become emblematic of a much bigger societal problem, or you believe in the moment, maybe because of the kind of the heightened discourse happening around it, that like, this is it, like this is symbolic of everything that is wrong with with culture and that probably people with a lot more power than this person are doing wrong. Yeah. And I don't know, the the need to force someone to repent and then to not accept their yeah. repentance. Like it's it's something. It is some specific thing. Yes, and I I have seen this happen to our show that somebody will listen to one of our episodes or maybe not listen like super duper closely to one of our episodes and will tweet out something like you know, I'm tired of these true crime podcasts that are just copaganda and they just listen to what cops say and they don't take victims seriously at all. You know, this is something that we've talked about on the show. This is something that we try really hard not to do. But, you know, if you take sort of a 15 minute snippet out of our show or you only listen to one episode or you don't know us that well, like maybe it can come off like we're a little bit flippant about this. Yeah. And then oftentimes what happens is that other people who have never heard our show will jump in and be like, these fucking true crime podcasts, they're all copaganda, right? They're getting mad at the type of show that they think we represent. Yeah. All of a sudden, you'll have 30 or 40 people saying like, yeah, fuck that show. And it kind of looks, it takes the form of people being mad at us, but they're actually mad at a type of show, which of course, like we we share that critique. Like, I totally agree that a lot of true crime podcasts are trash. I guess I also feel like I'm fine with people hating this show. Yeah. Like people hate things all the time. Like media exists to be liked or disliked. And like, I'm fine with that. I'm at peace with it. I just like, I also think that I should be allowed to choose to not hear about it. Yes. And I feel like there's this thing where as the kind of public figure that I am like I'm a little one but I'm a one it's not like I don't receive feedback and it's not like I don't want any at all but like I do not want to be constantly available to hear anything that anyone has to say about what I have done 
Yeah. I don't think everyone has this expectation, but I think a lot of people do. And I think a lot of creators operate to try to meet that expectation. And I think it's because yeah. I don't think it's sustainable. I think some people can do it, but like, I'm not one of them. Mm. But also, this is the first I've heard of like that level of criticism. And like, I'm, I feel good about the fact that I have not been interacting with that until you told me about it. Exactly. Because this isn't for me to see, right? This is for people to talk about problems with the genre. And, and like, on a fundamental level, it doesn't even feel like my business. I mean, this to me is like the sort of the central social media conundrum is that I don't think humans are designed to get this much feedback. No. Like, I think that people have the right to listen or not listen to the show for any reason. And they have the right to tell their friends that our show is trash. <laughs> But I just know it's not great for my mental health to see those conversations. It isn't helping me. I don't think I should be there participating in them. Yeah, right. And like, I am taking a break from Twitter right now. The fact that I am saying that probably means that I will have like dragged my ass addictedly back even by the time <laughs> this episode comes out. But one of the reasons I just stepped away from it was because I was just finding myself getting irritated at people all the time. Yeah. And it wasn't for people being mean to me. And it wasn't for people trying to call me out. Most of it is just that thing where like, where you're like, here are my three favorite kinds of bagel. And someone's like, you forgot poppy seed. And you're like, no, that's your favorite bagel. <laughs> God, I just got such a spike of stress when you said that. That is like exactly what being on Twitter is like. Right. <laughs> it's like, this is poppy seed erasure. And you're like, let me live. And that's what is hardest <laughs> for me about Twitter is I'm like... Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. And then I was having that response like six <laughs> times a day. And I was like, I don't want to feel this way because like I strive to like human beings. And like normally it comes easier to me than this. And like I cannot handle feeling this irritated at everyone. I know. That's why that happened. And also if you did that, it's not just that you did it. It's that like 2000 people have done yes. it and it's too much. Like if you did that, then like it's OK. Everyone yeah. says things about things sometimes but like it's 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 the repetition that really makes yeah. you sore yeah it grinds you down yeah it really does okay final denouement we're gonna end with a pop quiz great this is from 2019 this is like the ultimate shark jumping moment for cancel culture it's a passage from a book from a friend of the show and I'm going to read it to you, and you have to guess who it is. Oh, boy. These and other similar cancellations will have a deleterious impact on the criminal justice system. Former United States attorney Alex Costa was forced to resign as Secretary of Labor because he made a deal with Jeffrey Epstein, whom I represented, that was criticized by members of the public. Oh, okay. You're handing it to me on a little <laughs> silver platter now with you a know. little mother-of-pearl caviar spoon. <laughs> It's Alan Dershowitz. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Dershowitz, author of a book called The Abuse Excuse in, yes. I think, the mid-90s. Yeah. Full mm -hmm. circle. Yes. That's our Alan. So this is from his abysmal book called Cancel Culture, colon, The Latest oh, Attack on no. Free Speech and Due Process. I love that he wrote one of these stupid, like, lib-baiting books and I, I didn't know. even know that it came out. I know. That's amazing. It's just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, let, let Alan publish another book. You know, he needs to keep his hands busy. I mean, I think this Alex Acosta thing. Yeah. It's like all he did was give a sweetheart deal to like one of the worst sex criminals in modern American history. And for this, he was canceled. It's like, well, what do you want to happen? Like what? I think it really speaks to like the dearth of fictional defense lawyers and media that 
Alan Dershowitz as played by Ron Silver in Reversal of Fortune was so important to me as a teenager. Me too. Because no other fictional character that I knew of was like, no, it's important for guilty people to have good lawyers because this, this, and this. And like now he's just the most crooked, predictable. Oh, it's so depressing. I'm so sad, Mike. I love that movie and I've seen it so many times due to Jeremy Irons' neck and now it's ruined for me. Well, Jeremy Irons' neck is still there. I know, it's still there. We should both have some ice cream about this. (laughs) (laughs) 